You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning and good afternoon. My name is Mona Yakubian. I'm the Vice President of the Middle East and North Africa Center at the U.S. Institute of Peace. It's my pleasure to welcome all of you to this very important webinar marking the one-year anniversary of the catastrophic earthquakes that hit Turkey and Northwest Syria. One year ago today, an earthquake measuring 7.8 on the Richter scale hit southeastern Turkey, northwestern Syria. Uh, some 59,000 people were killed. At least 6,000 people were killed in Syria. Uh, it affected one of the most vulnerable parts of Syria, uh, Idlib, Governorate, where some 4.5 million people, many of them displaced multiple times, were living. The earthquake had the effect of exacerbating an already extremely dire situation on the ground in Syria. And today, we are joined by an esteemed panel who will help us understand both the immediate impacts of the earthquake, where Syria is one year from since the earthquake, and what we can expect going forward uh, as the country continues to uh, contend with many, many challenges. I'm happy to welcome Dr. Mufaddal Hamadeh, who is the president of the Syrian American Medical Society, or SAMS. Based in Chicago, Dr. Hamadeh is a practicing physician He's board certified in medical oncology and hematology. Dr. Mufaddal arrived in Turkey less than one week after the earthquake to assist with relief efforts. Dr. Bashir Tajaldin joins us from Idlib in Northwest Syria. He is SAM's country director for Turkey and Syria. He's a medical doctor with a master's degree in internal medicine and he's been working on the humanitarian response in Syria since 2012. Alex Mahoney is the Division Chief for the Middle East and Levant with USAID's Bureau for Humanitarian Assistance. He helped lead BHA's response to the Turkey-Syria earthquake from Washington, D.C. as BHA's Associate Response Director. Alex has been involved deeply in USAID's humanitarian response in Syria since 2011. What we'll do, I'm gonna engage our guests in discussion for about a half an hour or so, and then I'd like to bring in questions from all of you tuning in online. Please note you can ask your questions in the chat box that appears on the event page. So with that, Dr. Mufaddal, I'd like to start with you. Maybe first say a word or two about SAMS for those who may not be familiar with SAMS and then maybe talk about your own direct personal experience having traveled to Turkey just after the earthquakes. Thank you very much. I appreciate this opportunity. Um, SAMS has been working in Syria uh, since the war started in Syria over 12 years ago. Uh, initially, SAMS was established in 1998 as uh, a basically a medical society organization that has roots in Syria and tried to help the Syrian people in education mainly. It was more like a social club. But in, after the war started, SAMS transformed itself into building a network of uh, 
um, healthcare uh, providers inside Syria during the most difficult days and times of war. So uh, we helped uh, build field hospitals. We supported the staff that are helping uh, the victims of war. We helped establish uh, essential needs clinics and, and field hospitals. We even built underground hospitals to protect them during the days of war. We built cave hospitals. So we have a vast experience in going through all those stages of the war, supporting our staff, supporting the doctors, supporting hospitals, building clinics. So, you know, the our, our staff are uh, very well used to war, destruction, uh, collapse of buildings, used to uh, uh, receiving very sick and uh, critical uh, conditions of war. So the earthquake came and um, it was uh, basically an exaggerated experience for them. And they've never seen anything on that scale that big before. In addition, the uh, earthquake itself was the scariest thing they ever experienced. As many, many people told me, it was much worse than the barrel bombs they faced, more worse than the uh, chemical weapons attack that they were subjected to. The fear that an earthquake can instill in your heart and body and mind is nothing like you can ever experience in your life. So uh, a, a lot of destruction happened in, in a very vulnerable area, as you have said before. I, I basically, these are, uh, you know, the, an area that is underserved in terms of healthcare infrastructure. Uh, but our experienced staff and dedicated staff work day and night uh, over the ensuing, you know, 24 hours after the earthquake and the days after. And they've done a remarkable job of saving as many lives as they could. Um, obviously, for us here living in the U.S., uh, you know, the leadership of SANS was extremely concerned, knowing how much of a dire need they need, how much help they need. So we established a, a warehouse immediately and received uh, tons of donations from a lot of people. And then our team, our president then uh, traveled to Syria the next day and he met with the um, local uh, leaders there, mainly the White Helmets and the Syrian Forum, and they formed a, a, a kind of a, a union to work together and to try to help with it, solve the problems. That was very effective immediately after the earthquake. So we had to, uh, you know, we we were able to provide some help and, 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 and needed equipments, but that was a trickle of the need that they needed at the point. At that point, uh, the one thing one thing is notable is the first international aid arriving to Syria was over seven or eight days after the earthquake. Uh, very sad because the Syrian people were practically left alone they were uh, they were left to their own devices luckily with the help of the white helmets who had a great experience in recovering uh, uh, after collapsed buildings and their the help of the community providing all they needed in terms of heavy lift equipments and and, and that separate helped save many lives one thing that i happened that after i talked to the white helmets said we were we were done 
removing people from underneath the rebels much sooner than the Turks. And from, for one reason is we don't follow safety standards. We go in, we expose our lives to danger, we are ready to sacrifice our lives to get the people out. So uh, they were, you know, and that's how they used to do it for over the last few years. Anyway, so we, we, we had a great, uh, you know, the, the infrastructure we built, even though we the, this whole experience exposed many, many gaps in it, but it was strong enough to be able to withhold a few, few days and help save many lives as, as they can. We arrived there, uh, obviously we got to the hospital. We met some of the victims uh, that were there and I can't forget the few moments that was extremely um, emotional for us. Um, you know, we, the one thing that uh, surprised me more than anything else is how numb people were. You know, I'm looking at the victims and seeing the, the people, the, the, the children who lost everything, lost their parents and my, my tears in my eyes and everybody else's brain numb. And I experienced that before when I went to Syria after major events, after bombardments. And, I, and it was sad to realize that those people in Syria got used to tragedies. It's not new to them. It's a normal life for them. As if death, destruction, and loss is their normal life. And it's been that way, unfortunately, for the last 12 years. Um, moving forward, I think the earthquake had a lot of good and good, you know, good effects. Uh, and it's a, you know, silver lining, we can say that. Is on one hand, we've seen a lot of help from the uh, international community, from especially the American community here, uh, the donations poured in and, and uh, we were able now to establish medical missions going to Syria every month since the earthquake. And I just was on the 12th mission, medical mission since then. They that opened up at the borders, and, and we've seen some of the gaps in there that we were able to fill now. And we can talk about it more. So we have enough money, we have enough support now to build a brand new hospital, a brand new cancer center, a brand new radiation oncology center. And we have a dream now to build a, a, a sand city that after we bought a, like a, a over 12 acre land and we're, we're started the construction process now. So there are new things that are coming up, uh, new teaching opportunities, new uh, training opportunities uh, that are opening up for now, and we're working on it. Uh, unfortunately, I visited Jindaris, the one, the area that was hit the most since the earthquake. Uh, the rebels gone, and but no construction started. The tents that were re erected there, the refugees are still there, and their condition hasn't changed much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Mufanda. You've you've unpacked quite a lot that I want us to dive into more deeply. Uh, we are going to turn back to certainly where things are today, and also how uh, organizations like SAMS are thinking about uh, engaging on these many challenges going forward. I would, though, like to talk to turn to Dr. Bashir at this point. And Dr. Bashir, you are joining us from Idlib. Uh, where were you when the earthquake hit? Um, it would be, I think, for someone that experienced it directly, I think it would be helpful for our audience to understand the enormity of that earthquake and, and then understand from your perspective there on the ground 
how you were able to mobilize. I think Dr. Mufaddal raised a very important point that it took seven, eight days before any sort of international assistance made its way into Syria. And so I think it would be useful for us to understand from your perspective there on the ground what that situation looked like and how you were able to mobilize and also work with the White Helmets. Dr. Mufaddal's mentioned the White Helmets, Syria's first responders who operate in opposition-held parts of Syria and do enormous work saving people from barrel bombs and other things. They, of course, as first responders, then turned to earthquake rescue, uh, search and rescue. So please fill us in on how it was from your perspective. Hi, good morning, everyone. And, uh, uh, usually I'm based in, uh, in Gaziantep, and I was in Gaziantep when uh, the earthquake uh, happened. Uh, usually as uh, any normal day was preparing, uh, was sleeping, preparing to wake up uh, and say uh, goodbye to my children and kids uh, going to their schools and I uh, start my work going to the office. But unfortunately at that uh, uh, early morning, it was uh, cold weather and it was uh, alarming to uh, a snowy storm in the, uh, in the city and southern of Turkey at well. Uh, Unnormal. Un we wake, we woke up uh, about one and a half uh, hours uh, earlier than we are supposed to uh, wake, but everything around us was, uh, was shaking. Uh, unconsciously, uh, me and my wife for, uh, moved directly to, uh, to the kids' uh, rooms and making sure that they are okay, taking them and uh, uh, taking uh, them out of the house. Uh, uh, at the street, we found hundreds of uh, uh, people, our uh, neighbors, uh, just in the cold uh, weather in different uh, 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 uniforms and just uh, staring at and uh, trying to recognize what's happening. Uh, a lot of children uh, were in the uh, cold uh, uh, weather. Uh, so directly, as well uh, as soon as we are in the streets, start to communicate with uh, uh, my colleagues. I'm working uh, uh, with uh, with the team of about 200 uh, uh, staff responsible to uh, also supervise and uh, support more than 2,000 staff in the health facilities in uh, in Syria where we are uh, implementing our program. So also making sure uh, we have communication uh, with everyone, but really at that uh, uh, first. 30 uh, uh, minutes or one hour, we start to receive a lot of uh, tragedies. <laughs> I'll summarize it with uh, one story uh, where one of the uh, hospitals manager, one of the biggest hospitals manager in, uh, in Idlib in Northwest Syria, was trying to, uh, uh, I uh, communicated him asking uh, what uh, the needs they are, what the cases they are uh, receiving. He was at that time in, in Idlib at the hospital while his family, his uh, wife and uh, three children, including one newborn uh, uh, kids around uh, one month uh, age, were based in Antakya. Mm -hmm. And he just told me that I get an, uh, some news that our neighborhood have been destroyed totally. 
So please make sure uh, you are communicating with, uh, with my family. We have a lot of uh, cases, hundreds of cases at the ER department. We need to respond. So please, it's your responsibility. Just make sure that my family are uh, okay. So at that time, we, you can manage the, that uh, balance between a uh, uh, doctor who is uh, trying to help people who, are, who have been affected uh, by the earthquake in Syria while his family are living in Turkey and they are in also one of the most affected uh, uh, cities and communities. Unfortunately, at the second, uh, at the next day, the rescue uh, teams could uh, find his uh, uh, two daughters while he lost his wife and uh, his newborn uh, uh, kid. Uh, and then he continued uh, uh, his work. And this is the uh, situation of all the health uh, care providers, including physicians, nurses, midwives in uh, northwest uh, Syria. Uh, on the other hand, on the other uh, part of the uh, borders, at the first uh, uh, two nights, we spent uh, uh, the nights in the open uh, uh, settings, in uh, temporary shelters, in cars. So uh, we have almost about uh, 85 uh, staff members here in, uh, in Gaziantep office, and they they need to respond to the uh, to the crisis. So they were uh, trying to communicate with the partners, donors, with the field uh, around the, uh, uh, the time to make sure that they are providing the support while their families are in need uh, for them. Uh, today, after one year, uh, actually, uh, uh, also, uh, I woke up early to uh, come from uh, Gaziantep to uh, Syria. Uh, also, I woke up at uh, 4 a.m. And uh, after a few minutes, I uh, just checked my uh, laptop and start uh, to receive hundreds of notifications of friends and colleagues who are uh, uh, recalling and remembering their beloved uh, persons and their colleagues who have been uh, lost uh, uh, last year. Still, a uh, big uh, uh, trauma uh, to the uh, people, uh, in, especially in Syria. I uh, went to Jenderes this morning to uh, participate in uh, in an event that have uh, been organized by the White Helmets, and they also uh, presented a video about their response uh, in the uh, first hours. Beside me, there was one of the, of my friends who started to cry uh, as soon as he uh, watched the video because himself, he was uh, helping in uh, the rescuing uh, teams and he lost 17 members of his uh, family. Uh, unfortunately, like Dr. Mufattal mentioned, Dr. Mufattal was in Syria last uh, uh, month and today still a lot of uh, construction work uh, uh, needs to be uh, done. Uh, Jenderes, as one of the uh, uh, most affected uh, communities in northwest Syria, still have a lot of uh, destructed uh, buildings. And uh, on my way from Jenderes to Idlib, which is about two, uh, two hours driving, there are a lot and uh, tens, of, uh, tens of thousands of uh, 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 informal shel shelters and tents on both uh, sides of the 
uh, of the roads. Although uh, uh, the consortium and union we uh, worked uh, uh, on uh, along uh, with the White Helmets and Syrian uh, Forum after uh, directly after the earthquake, we provided some infrastructure uh, construction like uh, uh, the main roads we uh, uh, to facilitate access. We, uh, with our partners, start to uh, rehabilitate uh, uh, the affected uh, schools or some of them trying to uh, improve the health infrastructure, but really still uh, maybe hundreds of thousands or millions of uh, people and children are uh, uh, or don't have access to education, don't have access to uh, uh, healthcare uh, uh, services. And during, uh, during the last uh, year, although there are a lot of uh, support uh, done, but it's really very minimum compared to the needs, especially when we know that before the earthquake, there was the cholera outbreak. Before that, there was the COVID outbreak. And after the earthquake uh, itself, uh, the escalation uh, took place in, uh, in the area in, uh, on October uh, last year, resulted in additional 120,000 uh, displaced uh, people. Also, the, uh, the acute the shortage and decreasing of the uh, humanitarian funding to uh, northwest Syria, including the uh, the big cut of the WFP program, and uh, that will uh, the, and start to threaten the uh, food security. So, unfortunately, after one year, still a lot of uh, work uh, uh, is needed. And really, the needs are uh, increasing uh, day after day. Now we are reaching the, uh, uh, the highest number of people in need in Syria, mainly in northwest uh, Syria. Uh, so it's, uh, it's again, uh, an open uh, call for all of us to, uh, uh, to increase our participation uh, to those uh, people in need. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bashir. I wonder if you could just, in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake, could you speak a little bit more about the role of the White Helmets? Because uh, I think folks should understand that these first responders uh, really played a heroic role in the absence of any sort of international assistance, at least again in that first week or so. What was your sense of, of what role the, 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 the White Helmets played in terms of uh, search and rescue efforts? Actually, the White Helmets uh, uh, teams, yeah, I, I can, uh, uh, as I told uh, many of them uh, today when I met uh, with them, you are doing exactly what the midwives and the uh, uh, obstetrician is doing. You are taking the new lives, but not from the womb of a woman, but you are taking uh, those lives uh, from uh, under the, the ribbons. They have very limited resources. They didn't receive the uh, support of those heavy equipments uh, uh, usually used in such uh, uh, disasters, but they really used uh, their uh, uh, willingness to help uh, uh, the people using their hands, their uh, simple tools, just to uh, save what whatever they uh, they can save. And they, uh, at least uh, in the first uh, five days, they worked around uh, uh, the clock. They didn't stop uh, uh, 
any uh, minute. They are just like uh, uh, the the doctor I uh, uh, I spoke uh, about him who lost his wife and his two uh, uh, his uh, new uh, new parent kid. They are the same. They lost uh, their family members, but uh, uh, they also continue to rescuing uh, lives and provide the support, taking the injured people uh, from under the rebels and. Uh, uh, referring them to the uh, health facilities to be uh, treated so without uh, without their contribution the uh, healthcare worker could not also provide the uh, or continue the life uh, uh, saving uh, services so this is in brief their uh, initial work at, at the very uh, critical phase and then in the second phase they start to uh, open the main roads so uh, the other uh, sector could uh, go and provide the services and uh, assistance to the uh, population uh, uh, in the uh, collective centers or in uh, 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 the settlement camps or in formal settlements. And their third phase was to removing the variables. Uh, uh, so they uh, played and still are providing a lot of uh, uh, important uh, uh, work. Thank you, Dr. Bashir. Um, Alex, if I could turn to you, uh, maybe you could provide some insight from your perspective at USAID sitting in the Bureau of Humanitarian Assistance in terms of uh, what were the challenges that USAID was faced with in the immediate aftermath of the, of the earthquake, particularly, again, at trying to get assistance into, into Northwest Syria. What, what were the unique challenges that you all found yourselves confronted with in that situation? Sure, good morning. First, let me just say thanks, um, Mona, to you, to USIP and SAMS uh, for hosting this, this event. I think it's really important uh, that people continue to, to recognize that, that Syria uh, remains a major humanitarian crisis and it, it, it needs our, our continued attention. Um, I'll, I'll talk about the challenges, but I, I first want to I want to talk about how we responded to this um, immediately after the earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria. Uh, we mobilized a, a DART, that's a disaster assistance response team, uh, which is a team of specialists that are that are trained to respond to disasters around the world, uh, and that included a large urban search and rescue component. Uh, so our response focused from day one on both Turkey and Syria. Uh, the DART comprised more than 200 staff at the peak, uh, and that included incorporating uh, an existing team that we have um, for Syria that that operates um, out of Turkey and, and Jordan to, to help respond to the ongoing crisis um, in, in Syria. The assistance we provided for both countries totaled more than $242 million, uh, and that was for food, health, shelter, water, sanitation, uh, and other life-saving support. With that support, for example, the UN World Food Program has reached 2.7 million people with hot meals and food rations, uh, as well as with multi-purpose cash assistance. We brought in, in the days after the earthquake, 10 flights with nearly 1.8 million pounds of relief supplies uh, for both Turkey and Syria uh, for onward distribution through the International Organization for Migration. Uh, and we also partnered with our Department of Defense 
uh, to transport nearly 600,000 pounds uh, for newly displaced people, again, both in Turkey uh, and Syria. In Syria, we, our partners distributed critical medical supplies and provided mental health and psychosocial support. Uh, speaking specifically for Syria, we provided more than $170 million uh, to both UN organizations and non-governmental organizations working in the in the northwest part of Syria, which was hardest hit by the quake. Um, so the World Food Program, for example, reached 2.2 million people um, with emergency food assistance. Um, and I, I should also mention that, that our support immediately following the earthquake included funding to the White Helmets uh, to help them with their heroic work. They, they are an ongoing uh, partner of USAID um, and, and right in the aftermath of the earthquake, we gave them an additional uh, awards to help to help their rapid response. Um, in terms of challenges, I, I would say the 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 top challenge. Well, there there were two. Um, one is common in in any earthquake, which is that the people who are who are there to respond are are often also directly affected by the quake. Um, so you heard already from from our SAMS colleagues um, about about staff whose families suffered suffered losses, uh, and many of our partners experienced the same. I, I had to I had to um, sign many condolence letters for 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 partner staff who who died as a result of the earthquake. Uh, this also affected the Turkey side, and importantly, it affected staff and infrastructure at the border crossings. So, so that was one factor in, in aid access. But I, I would say the biggest factor, and, and this remains an ongoing issue, uh, is just the, the tenuous nature of, of access into, into northwestern Syria. So, so about a week after the, the earthquake, the, the regime granted access to two additional crossings, uh, in addition to Bab al-Hawa, which was already um, which was already open to UN agencies. Uh, they added Bab al-Salam and Bab al-Rai, uh, which was welcome, but but a week after. Um, and and recently they they reauthorized um, Bab al Bab al-Hawa for for another six months. But what we really need to see is is ongoing access, and and that didn't exist. Um, the White Helmets did amazing work in the days and hours after the earthquake. One of the characteristics of search and rescue operations is you must begin to work within immediately because, because people cannot survive long buried under rubble. Uh, so they were able to do that, but really there, there should have been more organizations and, and it was just very, very difficult for, for, um, you know, search and rescue requires hundreds of teams of hundreds of people uh, and heavy equipment, and and getting that in was was extremely difficult. Yeah, I think thank you, Alex. Thank you for both the the descriptions of what you all were able to do, but also these challenges. And I'd like to sort of come back to you a little bit on that because it was notable um, the disparity between the ability for international teams to quickly get into Turkey versus the difficulties of, of accessing 
Syria. And it sort of, for me, it raises the question of, is there not, do we need a doctrine of, you know, the responsibility to rescue, where when there's a catastrophic event like a 7.8 magnitude earthquake, there needs to be a way to address whatever the risk issues are of engaging um, in a cross-border uh, sort of uh, assistance uh, mechanism so that people in need in those precious early hours after something like an earthquake, which really means the difference between life and death, are able to access, you know, that search and rescue teams are able to access people uh, much more quickly. I don't know if there's any thinking going on within USAID on should there be another such disaster in another conflict zone, um, how to address these kinds of almost legal restrictions that impede the access of aid immediately uh, following a natural disaster. Is there anything going on at aid about that? So this is something that we think about and work on all the time. I, I think what makes Syria uh, unique is the is the issues around access to to areas that the regime does not control. Uh, and until until last until July of of um, 2023, there had been a UN Security Council resolution for for at least one of those crossings. Uh, one of the things that we have advocated for is is that we we need to see those crossings formalized again through through a Security uh, Council resolution. Right now, uh, access remains tenuous. Uh, because it's dependent on the the Syrian government continuing to to agree to to permit um, aid to come through. So so I think that's the most critical aspect of it. In in most countries, um, there there is an understanding uh, with with governments that that when when something catastrophic like an earthquake happens, you need to get bureaucratic obstacles out of the way. Um, and and you know allow allow teams to come in and, and allow them to do their work. Um, so it's rare that we see challenges like we like we did in Syria with with just days and days um, needed for 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 substantial aid to get in. Um, so I would advocate revisiting those those resolutions um, most importantly, um, but ultimately there also needs to be a enduring, uh, political solution to the conflict in in Syria. Um, the you know this comes in the context of a humanitarian crisis that has lasted over over ten years and has left people incredibly vulnerable, which also contributed to the difficulties in responding to the earthquake. Thank you, Alex. Uh, Dr. Mufaddal, I'd like to turn back to you. Um, you've been making several trips back and forth uh, to Syria. And I want to understand, you know, how SAMS is prioritizing what are the, where where does the greatest need lie? And, and in particular, I think I would highlight, I think as Alex has also alluded, we're seeing actually humanitarian need increase in Syria. The numbers of people who require humanitarian aid has actually increased in 2023. We have issues, as Dr. Bashir mentioned, of, um, schools being destroyed by the earthquake and adding to the number of Syrian children 
um, who are out of school because there's there aren't schools to go to. Um, th there's just enormous need, and not to mention, as I think you noted, the the reconstruction from the earthquake sounds like has has moved at best quite slowly. So when SAMS is looking at this kind of wide range of challenges, how do you think about how to prioritize where and how to engage, understanding that you are primarily a health providing organization, but how do you think about it in the context of the much broader need that is evident in Syria? Yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a million dollar question. But before I start answering this, I, I want to take this opportunity to thank USAID for all the support they have given us over the years and the extra $2.2 million, I guess, after the earthquake. Their support has been essential in maintaining our function and work in, in Syria, Northwest Syria, over the years. Going back to the question, it, uh, you know, uh, when when I was asked once, what do the people in Syria need the most at this point? And I, my answer was hope. Yeah. I think the problem is with Syria is the problem, the uncertainty right now, the uncertainty that has been going on for years. We enjoyed a, a, a relatively a relative calm for the last two years, and, and many changes happen over the with that relative calm in the last two years. So if we can be assured of the future, then people can start thinking about building their future. The, the most heartening thing is when you ask a child in Syria, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he says, nothing, because I have no future. As, so this is the, the most important thing for the people now, is to believe in a future. And, and, you know, from the health-wise, healthcare-wise and health infrastructure is, you know, I think one thing that is missing and I think the needed the most right now is psychosocial support, psychological support to many people. I mean, the Syrian people are probably the most resilient people that I've ever seen and I witnessed in my life. I have never seen more resilient people than the Syrian people. But... You keep on relying on their resiliency, you know, it, it, it doesn't work anymore. It has to, there has to be some more psychological support. Children, children is the biggest uh, disaster for Syria over the last 10 years. Uh, I, I call the, the, this uh, generation of children as the last generation. The last school, they lost their friends, they lost their families, they lost their communities, they lost their, 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 uh, support they lost everything you see many children working now and they lost they left school because they can't find enough to eat for schools health children mental health for children uh, children with disability is a big thing that we're going to try to work on many children with disability whether mental physical and um, psychological any you know a lot of those uh, that were started working on for healthcare-wise, we need uh, healthcare infrastructure. The hospitals we have, have now, we're supporting. They're doing a tremendous job. We're building new hospitals, renovating new hospitals. That's not enough. It's time for us to build quality healthcare services, quality uh, uh, constructions, uh, and that's why we're working on training doctors. On we have fellowship programs, we have residency programs. We, you know, in whole entire Idlib, there's uh, in Northwest, there's only one psychiatrist. 
there are no pediatric oncologists treating cancer patients. So we are training pediatric oncologists. We're sending them to Jordan to train at King Hussein Cancer Center. We, we graduated two new hematologists, oncologists so they can treat cancer center. Their certain diseases are not covered by aid, by they're not covered by grants. We have to dig into private funds in order to cover the cancer as a big thing. And and that was a very vulnerable thing when the borders with Turkey were closed. People' lives were endangered, and, and cancer patients found a way to get cancer now, because of expanding our cancer program, our, our oncology program. Our, our, we're getting some grants for medical oncology, for kid care, for drugs. We'll be able to provide more people with with the care they need at home. They don't have to travel to Turkey. To that. So that exposed many things. And immediately after the after the aftermath, dialysis kits were missing. We didn't have enough dialysis kits. We didn't have enough dialysis machines. Uh, with crushed ones, injuries, many patients went to renal failures. And that was the biggest uh, problem initially after the earthquake. So now with the, with the support we had after the earthquake, uh, SANS decided that we're going to build now a new infrastructure. So we're embarking on a new hospital now, uh, after we bought the land, we're building a 450-bed hospital. It's gonna be the state of art, and it's gonna have to be American standards. It's not gonna be field hospital standards anymore. We, it's the people of Syria and the doctors in Syria deserve better. So we're gonna build a cancer center also, and we are building teaching institution that trains doctors to lift the level of healthcare services to the level that is standard. Uh, worldwide, and uh, uh, we're, we're getting a lot of support. The doctors in Syria are excited, excited about it. We're getting help from the community. Moving forward, I think, uh, you know, we need to invest in our own communities there. Two examples that I learned recently about how we can do that, uh, especially in light of declining uh, aid to Syria, is one is we just opened up a, a new uh, clinic, a new small hospitals, and then a CAT scan, state-of-the-art CAT scan, in a small village in Syria called Sarmeen. The whole community was so excited about it. The landlord came to us and said, I don't want any more uh, money. I will give you the land for free. I will do everything. And the whole community celebrated the, the, the this new machine, and they expressed their wealth to do everything they can to help us expand and, and bring in more healthcare services to Syria. So we're trying to need to change the mentality from the receiving to the giving to, to partnering with the community, just like happened after the earthquake when all the contractors, all the have the private heavy equipment machine came up to us, came to the White House and said, here's our machines, they're under your 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 control, you can under your service do anything you want to help people. I think that's, you know, providing hope, stability, training people to be able to be dependent and, and to wean them off of uh, aid. It's an extraordinary effort. And I, I want to explore that a little bit more deeply. But you mentioned something that actually uh, connects a bit to one of the questions that's being asked, which is you talk about building the, you know, Syria, Northwest Syria is in dire need of healthcare infrastructure and building hospitals, and you said building them to American standards. And the question that's in the chat that I want to sort of pose to you, but also maybe to Alex, is apparently in, in parts of Turkey, those buildings that were earthquake compliant 
fared much better. Those, those buildings that were built to code, in other words, actually did much better in the earthquake than when there were uh, you know, shortcuts taken. I assume, Dr. Mufaddal, given particularly now this history, and this is a this is a tectonic, an area of, of significant tectonic activity, that buildings that you all would 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 build in Syria would would also comply with um earthquake standards. Is that something that you consider now as you move Absolutely, on? absolutely. Our new design is earthquake uh, resistant. It's environmentally friendly. Uh, solar energy, uh, it's all got to be incorporated together in that new building. Okay. And and Alex, do you have any thoughts on that uh, from, from the, your perspective at AID? Did you all see a difference in how different structures fared in various parts of Turkey, depending on whether or not they were compliant with building codes? Yes. And, and we see that in earthquakes around the world. It, Earthquakes are sometimes described as a man-made disaster um, because it's the it's the structures that that fall and and kill people and and building codes are are absolutely critical to to reducing to reducing deaths and injuries. So 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 yes, that that is incredibly important. Um, I think if you if you look at Syria uh, and look at the history of the uh, you know the last. Decade plus uh, since the since the crisis began, uh, including you know barrel bombs and 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 all kinds of just just widespread destruction. Even buildings that were relatively sound have, have been made more vulnerable. So so um, you know I think Syria again is a in a very difficult place uh, in in terms of in terms of the soundness and safety of buildings. Uh, it is a critical issue for survivability in earthquakes. Yeah, no, you point to a, a very important um, issue, which is, of course, before the earthquake hit, many of these buildings in northwest Syria were already compromised by virtue of having uh, been subject to bombardment and fighting and so forth. Um, uh, Dr. Bashir, I'm going to turn to you again and see if I can have you talk a little bit more about the psychosocial needs on the ground, um, what you are seeing inside Syria, uh, and even, frankly, among your own staff, as you noted, who have suffered enormous loss as a result of the earthquake. How are you contending with the challenge of uh, uh, addressing trauma, uh, particularly with children? And are there innovative ways that you're looking to integrate psychosocial services into the care that you provide? It's actually the uh, mental health and psychosocial support is uh, uh, is of high need uh, since uh, more than a decade during the uh, Syrian crisis. But uh, after the earthquake, the population mainly in uh, northwest Syria uh, experienced uh, uh, a new uh, modality of, uh, uh, of the psychosocial uh, shocks. And uh, people ex uh, experienced many and many uh, 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 shocks. But after the earthquake, it was really very uh, uh, unique because also the, the staff themselves have been uh, affected directly. So the service providers has to be, uh, uh, who has to uh, respond to the crisis have been heavily affected by losing a lot of uh, uh, relatives. Uh, 
And that was obvious uh, from uh, for us because after a few months of the earthquake, we did some uh, surveys. There is a high uh, burnout uh, uh, rates among the uh, uh, service providers. Uh, and even within the beneficiaries, we are facing new uh, or a higher level of uh, PTSD uh, or post-traumatic uh, uh, stress disorder. Uh, more uh, 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 mental health uh, disorders. Uh, we need more uh, needs and uh, more uh, disorders, mainly with the uh, children. At the at the same time, we have huge lack and huge shortage of the service provider, uh, mainly for the mental health and psychosocial support. Like Doctor Fadal mentioned, in Idlib, only there is one psychiatrist is. Uh, uh, for more than uh, 5 uh, million population, which is uh, hugely under uh, standard. But also for the psychologists and psychosocial workers, usually this sector in, uh, in the uh, health system in Syria is uh, ignored and uh, was not uh, very grown even be, uh, before the crisis. So the needs uh, was uh, and still very uh, uh, big and uh, uh, huge. What we uh, did as a first uh, response, in, uh, uh, for example, in SAMS, we have uh, different uh, uh, offices in the region. So different, the teams from different offices stepped in and uh, provide the support and uh, those uh, peer support to the uh, uh, service provider that uh, also helped a lot in uh, relieving uh, the stress to the uh, provider and providing uh, support in addition to other uh, uh, initiatives. Uh, uh, personally, for me, I uh, found the most uh, uh, intervention that helped me to uh, relieve some stress is the flexibility provided from uh, the uh, leadership of the organization. So go and use all the resources you can. Don't uh, even uh, even uh, look after. So I have this uh, flexibility that gives me more uh, hope. But at the community level, uh, because we have a shortage of staff, we already started uh, around the earthquake uh, some uh, uh, community programs that uh, one of them is the uh, uh, CETA program partnership with uh, uh, some universities, the Johns Hopkins University. It's, uh, this approach is just to uh, train uh, the local women at the community to provide the psychosocial support to their uh, peers, women and uh, children, which is very uh, uh, unique program, very uh, useful program, and we expanded after the earthquake uh, again. Also, on the other hand, because we have a lack of uh, uh, of the staff, although we expand and integrated uh, uh, the psychosocial support in all our uh, activities, including uh, outpatient, inpatient, primary health care and secondary health care, uh, especially uh, uh, for the uh, patients with non-communicable diseases and chronic uh, cases like uh, the cancer and the cardiac diseases, we are integrating the psychosocial support services. But on the long uh, uh, run, also, we uh, we initiated uh, a long-term uh, uh, educational program targeting uh, many uh, branches of the uh, MHPSS, including uh, 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 psychiatric nursing, clinical psychologists, and psychosocial worker. So we are uh, also working on the long-term in uh, 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 
education and training program so we can also uh, provide the community at large uh, with the, uh, uh, the human capacity to uh, to, uh, to expand the, those programs and meet uh, some of the needs. But uh, it's really uh, one of the very big uh, problems in Northwest Syria is the mental health, psychosocial supports, uh, strikes, uh, uh, and also we have uh, high rates of uh, drugs addiction, we have uh, a high rate of uh, uh, suicide uh, uh, as well, which is also uh, uh, increased after the uh, uh, earthquake, relatively. but the the uh, root cause uh, also is uh, in, uh, my opinion and many others opinion is uh, what Dr. Mufaddal mentioned, the uh, lack of hope. Yeah. Well, I want to, before turning to Dr. Mufaddal, because I'd like to give you, Dr. Mufaddal, the last word, I, I do want to turn briefly to you, Alex. Um, you've been covering Syria since the start of the conflict. The conflict will enter its 14th year next month. And we're seeing significant issues with diminishing humanitarian aid budgets, donor fatigue, competing needs, both in the region and around the globe. Uh, the WFP, for example, is slated to phase out, I think I understand, a significant amount of its funding for Syria uh, in 2024. From your vantage point at USAID, how do you view how to address these significant challenges in Syria going forward in an age of, of diminishing assistance budgets? Thanks, Mona. That is a that is a good question and a and a tough one. Uh, one of the things that we are facing, I, I think the world is facing, is just a an era of growing humanitarian need. We, we've seen multiple new crises spring up in the last few years, um, growing numbers of people in need and and declining budgets. So, so that is the overall context um, that that is driving some of the reductions that you you referred to in Syria. Um, for us, what we are continuing to do, first of all, we we remain committed. I, I want to emphasize that. To, to responding to the crisis in Syria. Um, but I, I think we all need to think about how to, how to change how we respond and we need to think about, about bringing new donors to the table um, to, to address the, the growing needs in Syria and worldwide. So, so advocacy, uh, around the world with other governments, other donors is something that that my bureau is very intensely engaged in and trying to trying to message the the critical needs that continue to exist in in Syria. Uh, that's one of the reasons I'm I'm here today and and why this this um, this is so important that we have this discussion. Uh, so so that is one part of it. And then the other part of it is there are, there are different ways to to provide humanitarian assistance. Um, there are ways that that we can be more effective and more efficient uh, in terms of costs. Um, so so we just need to all think about that and and work together more closely than ever to to 
to be as efficient as possible. I think increasing the the size of the donor pool is is the most important um, thing that we can strive for. So I think with that, with our remaining few minutes, Dr. Mufaddal, I'd like to turn to you because you lead a Syrian American diaspora organization that is playing a critical role on the ground in Northwest Syria. And I think in many ways you are addressing precisely the kinds of gaps, although they're enormous, uh, that, that Alex has pointed to. In your just few minutes of concluding uh, comments, could you let us sort of understand, you've given us already some different, very creative ideas that SAMS is, is thinking of. How do you see the future in Syria and the role? How do we move forward? It is a very tough question, but listen, I don't want to diminish the need of aid to Syria, although in, 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 a, in a meeting that is focused on aid to Syria. But the Syrian people are very creative, hardworking, and very smart. Given the opportunities, they don't need aid. They can, they can thrive. They can do a lot of good things. The biggest example of the Syrian population, Syrian people, is the Syrian-American community here. Uh, this is a great community. What SAMS have provided to the Syrian people and what was able to do over the last 12 years, I don't know of any other organization in the world or in the Syrian history that was able to do what SAMS have done to the Syrian people. We treated 22 million people over the last 15 years. We saved thousands and thousands of lives. And that we're just an example of what Syrian people can do if they were given the opportunity to thrive. I think of all we need to do is try and find a solution, give them a chance to live. And of course, we keep on keeping pouring aid and all that stuff and things. But if we were able to provide the people of Syria with hope and a chance to work, get rid of you know corruption, and uh, the, the 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 things that ties them down, I think Syria will not only thrive, but it will be a beacon in the area that will provide aid to everybody else. And I truly believe in that. But until we get there, we still need to support the essential needs of men of Syrian people and help them build their own institutions, help them develop their own their own um, ways to help each other, to help them, to help you know the Syrian population be independent and be able to uh, develop their own institutions and or and their own. Uh, uh, their own uh, ways of, of doing things so they can be able to be eventually independent. Uh, and I think this is, it can happen, but it will require hope, stability, and believe in the future. Dr. Mufaddal, I want to thank you for uh, helping us end this on a hopeful note, because I think I would certainly agree with you. That is really critical for the Syrian people going forward. I want to thank you, Dr. Mufaddal, Dr. Bashir. I want to thank you and, and Alex Mahoney as well for this excellent discussion. Uh, Syria does not really get the attention it needs, I think, in this day, given all of the other 
uh, issues in the region and around the globe. So I thank all of you for your time and your tremendous insights in helping to illuminate where Syria is uh, one day, one year after uh, the, the February 6th earthquake. Thank you very much. And thank you to our audience for participating in this very important discussion. I wish everyone a pleasant rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. For thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.